0: The Bain Free Radio
1: Hour.
2: On the podcast, regolithic alt-right anti-Kleiner's protest defoliation by the flat-earth, left-folding sincliners. Hey, nobody tell them, but it's now generally agreed that the magmatic causation sequence is handled by stone-working leprechauns in Tirna Nog. Nitroid, Seah shon Apeka, Plus, we pause in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller to bring you a cool audio version of an award-winning short story. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour Podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have part two of a roundtable discussion of the book Straight Out of Tombstone, which is a weird western anthology edited by David Boop, who's with us, and authors Robert E. Vardman, David Lee Summers, Nicole Gibbons-Kurtz, and Peter J. Wax, and they are all part of this great new weird western fantasy anthology. The podcast own David Afsharirad hosts the interview, so yee Stand by for that. Plus, we pause for a week in our complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe Novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This time we have an excellent audio reading of the short story Feldspar by Philip A. Kramer. Feldspar, which is set on Mars, is the story that won the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award for 2017 back in May. This is an annual award sponsored by Bain and the National Space Society to award great stories that project a positive future for humankind in space. So, stand by for that little treat. But now here's the news. (music) The July contest rattles on down the trail of glory in craftily won booty. In The Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett, The luxury cruise ship, Queen of the Sea, is transported through time and space to the Mediterranean in the time just after the death of Alexander the Great. Which got us thinking, that is, it got David F. Sharrod, who writes the copy, thinking, If you had a time-traveling cruise ship, where and when would you like to put into port? Assuming you wouldn't be stuck there like the unlucky passengers of the Queen of the Sea were. Let us know in a short paragraph, 100 words or fewer, for a chance to win a copy of The Alexander Inheritance signed by the three authors Eric Flint, Paula Goodluck, and Gorg Huff. The winning entry may also get published in the next Bain newsletter, which you'd better sign up for immediately at Bain.com, by the way. An email account without it is skimpy, inadequate, and sparse. Oh, you need that monthly bounty of good news the Bain newsletter brings. Good news that might even turn the tide of entropy itself and start the clock that regulates the heat death of the universe working backwards. So send us that entry now. Anyway, the contest ends after the 25th, and there will be no one else to blame but you when all the black holes evaporate. Plus, a signed copy of the Alexander inheritance is super great. Learn more at Bain.com there on the left-hand side of the front page. This is part two of a two-part roundtable discussion of Straight Out of Tombstone, conducted by David F. Sharerod. Part one can be found on last week's podcast.
3: Hey everybody, it's David Afshirad here on the Bane Free Radio Hour talking about another great short story anthology out now from Bane. This one is called Straight Out of Tombstone and it is a collection of all new weird western stories. Here to talk about it with me is the editor of Straight Out of Tombstone, David Boop. He is a Denver-based speculative fiction author. He's also an award-winning essayist and screenwriter. His debut novel, the sci-fi noir She Murdered Me With Science, is back in print from Wordfire Press after a six-year hiatus. Additionally, David is prolific in short fiction with over 50 short stories and two short films sold to date. While known for the Weird Western series, The Drowned Horse Chronicle, he's published across several genres, including horror, fantasy, and media tie-ins. He regularly tours the country speaking on writing and publishing at schools, libraries, and conventions. And uh, he'll be talking with us this evening. Uh, David Boop, thanks so much for being here.
4: Oh, thank you so much for having me and, and, and all the authors. Thank you.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, also here is uh, Robert E. Vardaman. He is the author of almost 100 published fantasy and science fiction novels and scores of short stories. He has written extensively in the Western genre, including many weird Westerns, under the pen name Jackson Lowry. Most recently, or Lowry, most recently published is Punished, a Weird Western Novel Trilogy. His work has been nominated for the Scribe Award, Western Fictioneers, Peacemaker Award, and uh for numerous new mexico arizona book awards in addition to his writing he has edited anthologies such as the Bain books published golden reflections with john saberhagen and career guide to your job in hell with scott phillips uh, bob thanks for coming on and talking with us
0: oh thank you for having me oh i wanted to add one thing to the small bio The Western Fictioneers just awarded me a Lifetime Achievement Award for writing westerns. I'm just inordinately proud of that at the moment.
3: Oh, absolutely. That merits mentioning for certain. Congratulations.
0: Thank you, thank you. Uh,
3: Also here today is uh, another David, David Lee Summers. He is the author of ten novels along with numerous short stories and poems. His writing spans a wide range of the imaginative form Uh, from science fiction to fantasy to horror his debut novels include vampires of the scarlet order which tells the story of a van of vampire mercenaries who fight evil and Owl dance which is a wild west steampunk adventure his short stories have appeared in such magazines and anthologies as realms of fantasy Cemetery dance and gaslight and grim he's twice been nominated for the science fiction poetry associations Riesling award Uh, In addition to writing, he's also edited such anthologies as Maximum Velocity, The Best of Full Throttle Space Tales, and A Kepler's Dozen, along with the magazine Tales of the Talisman. Uh, David, thanks so much for being here.
5: Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real thrill to be here.
3: All right, and also here is Nicole Givens Kurtz. She is the published author of the futuristic thriller series Sybil Lewis, and she's more than a little bit weird. Her novels have been named a finalist in the Fresh Voices in Science Fiction, Epi in Science Fiction, and Dream Realm Awards in Science Fiction. Uh, her short stories have earned <coughs> excuse me, an honorable mention in L. Ron Hubbard's Writers of the Future contest and have appeared in numerous anthologies and other publications. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for uh, being here today.
6: Oh, thank you for having me.
3: And finally, we have Peter J. Wax uh, back with us uh, on the podcast. Um, he is a best selling cross genre writer who has worked in various capacities across the creative fields in gaming, television, film, comics, and most recently, when not busy editing, he spends his time writing novels. He began in the creative fields as a child actor and model, most notably an extra on *Revenge of the Nerds* and *Thunder Alley*. How's that for a uh, piece of trivia for you? Uh, in gaming, he was the lead designer and story writer of *Cyberpunk CCG*, a consultant for *Allegiance*, and both a writer, ter- excuse me, a writer and editor for multiple books. In the Interface Zero line, Peter's first comic, Behind These Eyes, garnered a finalist spot for the Bram Stoker in 2012. Currently, he has published five novels, four novellas, and appeared in 16 anthologies. Uh, He has been a panelist, guest speaker, and guest of honor at a combined total of over 250 conventions, trade shows, organizations, and colleges. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for, uh, joining me back again on the uh, podcast. We talked about, uh, Little Green Min attack, and now we're going to talk about, uh, some cowboys, aliens, and vampires, so. Yeah,
7: awesome. Thank you for having me.
3: Um, but let's talk about some of those, uh, very cool stories. And, um, I thought, Bob, uh, Vardaman, we'd start with you, um, your story is called The Sixth World and is about a phrenologist on um, uh, on the trail of, of what may be similar or something like the Crystal Skulls um, from, uh, we know from, I don't know, what do you want to say? Archaeology, famous hoaxes, whatever you believe about them. Um, maybe if you could just, I, I just always like people to, as I say, entice the reader to go out and buy this book. Um, to read your story just tell us a little bit about it and maybe how it came about
0: one of the things that's always fascinated me about the west are the weird little backwaters uh, at one time there was a modoc uprising at northern california southern oregon and uh, essentially captain jack and the modocs hid away in uh, lava fields needless to say they were up against artillery and had no chance the ones that were caught and killed or executed, uh, their skulls were sent to the Army Museum in, New, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., because at the time phrenology was considered to be a science. How uh, did they develop because of the lumps on their head, in effect? Well, that's always fascinated me, and the uh, story revolves around a scientist who is revealed uh, he he receives a a skull that is completely inhuman, and he wants to find where it came from. He and his assistant come out into essentially what is now northwestern New Mexico, which is the heart of uh, Navajo land. And uh, obviously, if you're in the middle of Navajo land, there have to be Native Americans. Well, the shaman is... An outcast from his own people because he uh, believes in the mythology a little too much, that the humans have come from the fourth world into the fifth world and he's found uh aliens, which ties in with this being the fiftieth anniversary of the Roswell saucer crash. Uh it's one of those things where I looked at the things in New Mexico that would uh fit in nicely. Flying saucers, aliens, uh yeah, you know, the crystal skull thing is uh almost incidental. Uh but that god, the first time I heard about crystal skulls I think is probably in the uh uh seventies or so. Uh, even then, I thought, oh, this is, uh, this is pure fantasy, but uh, that's the least of it. The thing that I wanted to get across are the Navajo beliefs in how man entered this world and where man is supposed to be going from this world, and the phrenologist who is a pseudoscientist and i mixed it all together and i think uh, uh I came out with a pretty decent story uh, with tension and uh, a satisfactory ending at least for me it was a satisfactory ending
3: yeah no i i agree and i um i gonna ask you about uh, that but you kind of hit on it about the uh the navajo mythology that you um wove throughout the story um I don't guess there's much else to say about that. Um, but let me see. But yeah, I, I think uh, it's, it's something that you, like you said, you put a lot in there, but it, it maintains attention tension and, and excitement throughout. It doesn't get bogged down ever yet. You have all these interesting elements that you're bringing in simultaneously. Um, Dave Boop, do you have anything you wanted to say about this one? Uh, particular particularly? Well, uh,
4: I, I just, you know, uh, the idea of the crystal skull, I, I guess I felt myself still kind of wanting after the uh, last Indiana Jones film, uh, to hear more about crystal skull. Uh, and, uh, and Bob gave me a story that was, uh, pretty satisfactory in that regard. It's funny too, because, you know, I do a lot of research. Um, uh, I do my research on the Yavapai, which, um, Obviously, uh, bumped up against the Navajo and so forth. And the idea of the crossing over from the fourth world to the fifth world has been a, a fascination of mine. Um, a lot of people believe it, uh, lo- well, a lot of the natives from that uh, era believe it happened, uh, uh, what's called Montezuma's well. And, uh, um, you know, just reading about all of the legends and so forth around Montezuma's well. and and how their origin myths—it's um, just fascinating because it's so completely different than anything uh, that that I had read previous to that. And and I had studied mythology quite a bit throughout the years, and and to find a whole new origin mythology and and uh, um, get get excited, and then to find that Bob also was fascinated by it and gave me a story with that exact type of stuff that I. I love could couldn't resist, had to have the
0: story, thank you, Dave. Thank you
3: well, Bob, just before we I move on, um, I do want to talk about that, so I think, um, as you've written, quite a few westerns, and um like you said, Native Americans are going to be a part of that, and you know <clears throat> I think rightly people are often critical of the way westerns, especially in the past, handled. Native Americans um but th- I, th- they're handled very um well here I I believe I just wonder if you could talk about writing that how do you write a western in 2016 2017 that hues to those what we expect a western to be but is still respectful of Native American tradition and uh life
0: uh it's really fairly simple if you consider all of the characters in your story to be human beings. All of them have their own histories. All of them have their own uh, likes and hates, uh, different goals. Uh, Try to identify what that is, and it's no longer a stereotype. It's a human being with something that uh, the reader can identify with, and uh, I think that's probably what's been lacking. The uh, traditional Western uh, has been more concentrated on uh, essentially, uh, oh, they're inferior, therefore uh, Native Americans are uh, uh, shuffled off and are you know, almost afterthoughts in a lot of the traditional Westerns. No, uh, just go ahead and consider them as a full-blown character and get into their mythology, get into their uh, likes and hates, and you've got a real person. So that's is the uh, market, I think, for uh, modern-day Westerns set in a traditional uh, West.
4: If I could throw something in there, too. It was very important to me that uh, in this anthology um, that we had a lot of different perspectives of the Old West, um, uh, good, bad, from from male, female, uh, uh, different ethnicities, and so forth. And I'm very proud of the fact that I, I found a amazing Native American writer and uh, Naomi Brett Rourke, who uh, this is her, actually her first pro publication. Um, And uh, uh, she gives a a wonderful story that isn't just, you know, white hate or, you know, the, the, you know, they took our land sort of story. No, she gave a a real living story about living characters. and, And while, yes, there's a bad guy, um, it's not necessarily a, a story that you go away with going, oh, God, I feel preached to or anything like that. It's not. Uh, none of these stories are preachy stories. They had to, the characters and the situations had to, to live. They had to be real.
3: Yeah, well, let's actually talk about Nicole's story now, um, The Wicked West, because I think it's another one that brings a a. a different perspective than when you hear western what you immediately think of um and uh does what you're talking about bring um treats uh, different groups with uh, quite a bit of humanity um that maybe again in a in a old dime novel from uh the early 20th century might not have been treated this way so um nicole if you could just talk a little bit set up your story um in uh, the wicked west and how it came about
6: Oh, so my story is The Wicked Wild and it's, um, takes place. Oh, The Wicked Wild, I'm sorry. You're fine. Um, it takes place in the New Mexico territory, um, with a, because there were many, many different people, um, in the West. It offered freedom for, um, recently freed slaves. It offered freedom for, uh, Chinese immigrants who had worked the railroad. It offered just an amazing, it was just a very diverse place. And you do not see that in traditional westerns at all. Um, And so, in addition to the people who are already there, so my story takes place in in one of those boom towns uh, with a laundress um, who is a freed slave, um, and how she uses. But in addition to that, there are also people who are. Confederate soldiers who also made their way west because they've lost everything in the South or there's nothing in the South for them to go back to or to come home to, so they've made their way west as well. And so, how do you in in this new era, a place where you can your your emotional backpack or satchel has this stuff in it? Do you carry it with you to this place of opportunity, or do you put it aside and because someone else? So my protagonist is trying to become someone else. Trying to be free, living hard truth. There are other people in town, the antagonist in particular, who is still carrying those pieces of his old self, and he has not left those behind. And when he and with those pieces come his same belief system, Um, and so an anger, which becomes a demon-like force. And so it's basically a good versus evil black hat and white hat type of story, but with magic and demons and former slaves and confederate soldiers in New Mexico territory.
3: Uh, Yeah. well, First, let me apologize for getting the title wrong, The Wicked Wild. Um, That's what I get for having uh, penmanship like a doctor. Uh, I can't read my own notes. Um, I like, one thing that's interesting, and I hope we're not giving too much away, is, uh, I don't think we are, she draws on her um, ancestors. Uh, You know, that's her ancestors power. And I thought I'm going to put my English major hat on. Hopefully, hopefully I don't scare everyone away. Um, but I thought that was an interesting kind of, um, in a way, the thing that I read that is we had this myth of the individual in the West. That's sort of the cowboy. You're your own man or woman, um, uh, sort of cut free from any moorings. But, um, with Zara, she, it's her ancestors and her history, uh, that contract that, that, Give her her power, and that, um, that to me—that was a contrast with what we normally think of as as the individual Western myth.
6: Yeah, so, um, one of the things that I wanted to include was that many slaves lost, um, many Africans lost, lost their culture or connections due to auctioning off and breaking up of families and and just the slave trade in general. But I wanted her to retain the ancestors that she had, to be able to draw on the strength of who she is and who she was and where she comes from, even if that was not, even because I, I like the idea that even though she's been through this hardship and like selling and in the act of slavery and being freed from slavery, that she still draws power from a family, from a group of, of who she used to be. And that connection doesn't break, and that connection houses her in this very harsh, um, and unforgiving place. I I wanted that, and I've lived in New Mexico, and it's very windy. And so, the, <laughs> so as far as like being able to control the winds, um, that that's just part of just being out there. But I like the idea that she not only draws in, strength from herself, but her power comes from those that came before. Um, and I think about my ancestors and the strength, what I get, what I gained from my mother and what my mother gained from her mother and what my grandmother gained from my great-grandmother, especially in the African-American community, those things are passed down. There's, there's, there's remedies, there's stories. In much the same way it is for, like, the Dené, it's an oral history that's passed down that isn't always written down, that becomes structures of truth that makes us uniquely Dene or uniquely Apache or uniquely Zuni or uniquely, you know, Southern African Americans. And so I wanted that piece there um, because it is empowering for her, just like it's empowering for me sitting in North Carolina.
3: <laughs> um, there was one other line that I wanted to bring up, and we should say that this is like a badass story with like some pretty cool demon fighting, etc. I don't want to make again. None of these, like David Boop said, none of these stories feel like you're being preached to, or like, like I said, like you're in an English uh, being talked to by an English major. But there was a great line there that I wanted to draw attention to. Um, she talks about how um, Chad, this uh, ex Confederate soldier. Uh, she says she wants, he you know, what the evil in him wants her power. And, um, she, she says white in the line is white men always did, uh, want that power. And I thought that was a, a really cool, um, commentary on, on the slave trade. I mean, you're literally white people using the labor of, of, uh, Africans, African-Americans. Um, um did you do you want to I don't you you know this better than I do if you want to talk about your story <laughs>
6: um i was writing the wicked wild to um in the midst of a lot of of police brutality and a lot of just commentary about the value of black lives and it seems to be a continuing for me writing about the west it seems to be a continuing conversation about black bodies and black labor and black lives and their value um and so it it's it's that line is in there i can't say it's conscious um per se because i didn't intend it but those thoughts were very much a part of my writing and in connecting the modern conversation about the value of black lives in with the past where again what's the value of black lives um and so those two things can i can i add yeah can i add something whatever Uh,
4: sure okay one of the things that i i like to add on to this commentary is that um danae is not superhuman she's not um, a mutant with mutant powers she Mm-mm. is not superman and alien has come from another planet she's a very real human and much like m- all of us um there's a cost to her personally physically emotionally when she yeah. has to use these powers and i think that's mm-hmm. very important because when we stand up for things there's always a cost and and mm-hmm. that has to be paid and that's a good thing. I mean, nothing should be won without sacrifice. Nothing should be given without hard work and, and and sweat and so forth. I really believe, I believed in this character because there was a cost to her. Uh, and I think that's very important to to note that she doesn't just, you know, like Storm, just whip up a, a windstorm. She's she's no. not the descendant. She's not a X Men in the old west. She is very real. She's very human, and she is she is as fallible as any of us.
6: There's a physical cost to her using that power. So that she, and she doesn't. It's like with any any power that you have, unless you are Superman, um, you do have to have. You will have a cost, or at least your power is a curse and a blessing. So yeah, but it's not a preaching uh, story. No, I know they're boring. No. <laughs> so, like, but
7: again, maybe, but again, let's let's reiterate: this badass fighting demons, uh, you know, evil spirits. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to be bored. Don't skip it because you think it sounds like it's something an English major would like. It's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Let's. Uh, <laughs>
3: We're having so much fun. We're going kind of long, but so let's, uh, I'm going to stop there and move on to, uh, David Lee Summers, fountains of blood. Um, this one edges a little bit closer to steampunk in, in some ways. I think we were talking earlier. Um, and, uh, it's a, uh, Billy is a guy he's hired as a body uh, to be a bodyguard for Mr. Fountain, this, uh, lawyer who's, uh, trying to work out a deal with this. uh, There's a feud land feud going on. And, um, I guess take it from there, uh, David, if you would.
5: Well, I uh, I started this story, uh, I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and um, right behind my house is a cemetery. And there are cemetery. there's uh, two tombstones there, one for Albert J. Fountain and his son, Henry. They were real people of the Old West. Uh, who you know uh, Albert J. Fountain as is he was Billy the Kid's defense attorney. In, in the, Ooh. in the real world. And, uh, he got involved in, in, after Bill, after, uh, Billy the kid was shot, he, uh, ended up, uh, getting involved in the whole Lincoln County affair, which was this, uh, this big land feud, as you say. Um, but anyway, with these, the, these two summit, the, these two tombstones are there, but there are no bodies under them. And so when David came to me and asked, you know, for for a story for a weird Western anthology, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, I'm doing my walk through the neighborhood and I see these and I see the these tombstone these tombstones, and it's the reason there are no bodies under them is that they're just memorials. But my first thought was, you know, okay, tombstones with no bodies, vampires. <laughs> okay, so that that's kind of where where the the story uh, that that was kind of the genesis of the story, um, as far as where I took it, the, the story itself is set in my, in my Clockwork Legion uh, steampunk weird western world, and in that particular world, uh, Billy the Kid as we know him never really existed. Uh, Billy ended up getting onto a different life path, and he became the Billy McCarty that we see in the story. And, uh, Billy's hired as, uh, as Albert Fountain's, uh, bodyguard, and they're going through, uh, White Sands, which was where, uh, Albert and Henry disappeared, and they end up encountering this mysterious stranger, uh, and the mysterious stranger knocks Billy cold, and Albert and Henry disappear. And so it ends up becoming the story of, uh, of Billy trying to determine what happened to them and, and who was this strange, mysterious stranger who had no gun and somehow was able to, uh, to knock him to the, to the dirt and, uh, uh, leave a, a ragged, uh, bloody wound in his neck. And I've already mentioned vampires. So, uh, you, that gives away that part of it, but, uh, I, I won't give spoilers for, for the details of how that goes on.
3: Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Um, Plus, oh, there's also a Willie Nelson Easter egg for people um, in here. You refer to him. This, that mysterious stranger, I believe, has red hair. Um, so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> as as, a, as sitting in Austin, Texas, that that I caught that one. Um, so, um, what else can we talk? I'd like that you brought in um, Camilla by uh, Sheridan. Uh, I don't know. Say Lafanu, I guess. Um, La Fanu, uh, and perhaps folks, uh, who are not, have not brushed up on their vampire lore, uh, are not familiar with that. Could you just, just briefly, um, talk about that book a little bit, um, and what, what's going on there?
5: In, in many ways, Carmilla was, uh, you know, I, I might be misremembering this a little bit, but as I recall, Carmilla was actually the, the, really the very first vampire story people would have encountered, uh. In America, even before Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, uh, what the story tells about is it, it's, uh, a story about a woman and her daughter who end up, uh, getting stranded, uh, their coach breaks down, the daughter gets taken into a family, and then mysterious things start happening, uh, in that family. And it ends up that, you know, it, it's all, uh, the, so the daughter, Proves to be a vampire in the story, but it's told in almost this very spectral ghost type, uh, way of doing a vampire rather than kind of the, the more modern day, uh, romantic version of the va- vampire. And, uh, Carmilla ends up, uh, Carmilla's the vampire character and she ends up, uh, being seen at that people find uh, stories of her turning up in other points of time in which her name ends up uh, becoming anagrams of Carmilla. She's Mirkala at one point in the past. And so I, I reference that. And, and so the whole idea is this becomes the story that, that uh, Billy is introduced to that leads him into the vampire lore uh, rather than through the more traditional uh, uh, Dracula approach to it.
3: Yeah, I was, I was fun to see that pop up. You don't see references to that book very often. Um, D- Dave Boop, um, anything about this one you wanted to jump in and add as, as the uh, guy wearing the editor hat on this book?
4: Well, you know, what's a, what's fun is, is David and I have a long history together and, and I've read, you know, many of his stories as he's read mine. Uh, we've appeared in, in several anthologies together, uh, He's actually been the uh, editor on a couple of different anthologies I've been in. And so I'm I'm familiar with his storytelling and, and as he is mine. And it's like he wrote me a story he knew I was going to like.
0: Because he just
4: hit all of my happy places. Um, I mean, this had everything. It had steampunk, it had vampires, it had alternate history. I mean, he just like... I was like, mm, I'm going to write David a story. Um, you know what? His birthday's coming up. I'll just consider this a present as well. And uh, you know, it's just—it's a... and it was so—it uh, was such a delight to read the first time through. Uh, and 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 any time I get to read a David Lee Summer story, I'm I'm a happy man.
5: Well, I think what, one of the things uh, I'll say, in, in, in along the lines of the, the birthday present idea, is you know both both Dave and I are dads, and you know we, we've had conversations on on that form before. And I, I think one of the things I really wanted to do in the story, because Albert Fountain and his young son Henry, I really wanted to say something about the meaning of fatherhood, and you know I think that was one of the things uh, I, I I did in the story very deliberately, uh, but. You know, partly because I wanted to say it for myself, but I, I knew that was something that uh, Dave wanted to see, and I think we we don't often uh, hear you know tales, uh, real positive tales of of fatherhood and what it means and and what it means to be a father. And uh, I really wanted to get that in into this story.
4: i to say it almost has uh, a Disney like uh, uh, start in that you know we have a. A, a guy who is a single father in the old West, which is very much a, a Disney sort of thing to do, uh, <laughs> but there's no Disney uh, elements. You could you could not make this a Disney musical. Uh, <laughs> they, the closest they've ever gotten to that is the black culture. And, that didn't do well for them. So this is uh, definitely a uh, Western Gothic horror in that regard. But, uh, but yes, I definitely did love the father son relationship as, as, uh, you know, both David and I have kids that are becoming adults here. Uh, mine turns 18 in just a couple months and, uh, yours is off to college, if I'm not mistaken, this summer.
5: Yeah, she, she's, she's off at, my oldest is off in, uh, New Orleans, uh, in college and my youngest has just started, has, uh, actually just finished her first year of high school. So,
3: Well, uh, one thing we mentioned about uh, Fountains of Blood also applies to Peter J. Wack's story, um, which is that you're using real-life characters and repurposing them and um, doing some steampunky things. So, uh, Peter, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your story, uh, The Key?
7: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, It was more of a lark that I went ahead and used real-life people. I just... Never wanted, or I never had for these characters before, so I went, yeah, let's do it. Um specifically, I got to play with Rasputin, Tesla, and Churchill, all in one story. Uh, <laughs> uh with, with, uh, my character's out of the Canton Bounties universe. Uh, the Canton Bounties universe is about a, a gunslinger from the West who loses his, uh, his gunslinging arm in the great war and moves to shanghai and learns tai chi so that he can get a new arm uh, designed and built out of steel threads attached to acupuncture needles that are kept in place by two metal plates that are strapped to his chest it's a a, a, a very <laughs> complex assembly um his name is hung bird he's you know five foot two and a traditional western kind of gunfightery type character and he meets a very lone wolf and cub Type of character uh, in his best friend Inazuma, who is a six foot tall Oxford educated samurai, uh, <laughs> whose father was was outcast by a daimyo, and his whole uh, ikigai is the quest for vengeance to avenge his father's name, to bring down the the samurai and the daimyo. It's, like I said, it's very lone wolf and cub. Um, but what I what I really attempted to do with these guys was take two very very obvious. Kicks <laughs> of action adventure, and completely spin them around. And they're conmen. Um, specifically, they they figure out clever cons for the Cantonese government to bring in criminals. Uh, there's a, a series of short stories about them. Getting to write the one for for Straight Out of Tombstone was <laughs> a real pleasure. It was um, originally something that C.J. Henderson asked me to do. Dave, do you do you want to jump in on on C.J. there with Bigglesworth and? Um,
4: a little bit. Um, and and it, it, just as a, a reference for those who may not know who C J Henderson is, um, you know, several of us uh, on this on this podcast, uh, especially, uh, knew C J uh, before his his very premature passing. Um, in fact, it was uh, David Lee Summers who introduced me to him by putting me in a table of contents with C J, and uh, and because I was in that table of contents. I was able to reach out to CJ on the, believe it or not, MySpace. Uh, and, and he and I talked and became friends and, and, uh, we shared a love of pulp and things of that nature. And, uh, I had always, uh, wanted to work with CJ in, in some regard. Well, he came out here, uh, to Mile Highcon, uh, which is our, our big literary convention here in Denver. And because we had a relationship, um, I was, I was, you know, we were able to, to really, uh, bond and, and and I just, I loved the man dearly, so very dearly and, and his loss really affected me. And I'm so glad that Peter was able to get time with him to get to know him and, uh, wrote this story originally for him, um, because it feels like that I got CJ uh, sort of in the in the anthology as well, and uh, and I, I've done some CJ uh, benefit work before. You can find it online. There's uh, an anthology that benefits his family uh, called the Preservation, uh, the Society for the Preservation of CJ Anderson, and I highly recommend it because uh, it's it's a great uh, way to find out more about CJ and the people's uh, who's who's lives he affected um is that good peter
7: (laughs) yes yes absolutely um and and thank you for jumping in with that but what cj tasked me with um before he passed away was was writing a story for him with with these characters of mine that he really really liked and um giving him a story that was clever beyond clever uh (laughs) So uh you have Rasputin Tesla and Winston Churchill, a very young Winston Churchill in a time travel loop in the old West delivered in Shanghai in the 1890s mm-hmm. and put that in uh, a frame inside of a frame. And that was just like, I was exhausted. I'm like, just, just the outline is enough to exhaust me. And then I actually sat down with the story and with David and he actually helped guide it because it was only part way done um when we lost CJ. So, That is how the story came to be. It's a con job, so I really don't like going into any details.
3: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I wouldn't want... But I think if that's not enough to uh, uh, intrigue people, then I don't know what is, uh, what will do it. Um,
4: One of the great things about having Rasputin in there is it's kind of like a Russian doll. Each time you you pull open one, you find out, uh, you find something else, and Peter's story is, very much like that uh, each time you you think you know what's going on, you get to the next level and and you're just amazed at how well thought out this con is uh and and uh, and you'll just love the characters uh, I've read other uh Canton bounty stories, and I just love these guys and uh hope to someday poke 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 a Canton Bounties novel from, uh, Peter, uh, cause, uh, <clears throat> that would, that would be a gift. So,
3: <laughs> um, well, you know, just to close, uh, we talked a little bit obviously about um at the beginning uh some other examples of the weird western genre i thought we could close if everyone if you would maybe just make a a recommendation uh, after people go out and buy straight out of Tombstone buy multiple copies for their friends and family to give away um to their friends and family uh what should they read next or see watch next or hell if it's a game play next um that in the weird western genre that uh that you all enjoy, and um, I'll let whoever wants to go first go first.
0: No, I'll I'll go first. It's a pretty easy one. David Lee Summers, brazen shark.
5: Well, oh, thank you, Bob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I I'll, I, I'll I really like that. And... That's a nice nice story. <laughs> Well, I, I'll uh, recommend um, there, there's there's two
5: anthologies uh, edited by Cynthia Ward called Last Trails and Lost Trails Two. Uh, they're basically both uh, weird Western anthologies with kind of a multicultural bent. Uh, and I know Nicole has stories in there, and uh, there's some some really great authors in those anthologies, and, and highly recommended.
4: Uh I'm going to mention the amazing David Riley. Uh David Riley edits um uh, several anthologies which I've been uh, fortunate enough to be in. He also does uh, a magazine. Uh it's called uh, uh what what is the latest incarnation It's Science Fiction Trails has returned, right? Uh Science Fiction Science Trails. Fiction Trails is yeah. Sci-Fi Western. Yeah. And that just uh, rose uh from the ashes like a phoenix. Because he was doing steampunk trails for a while, um, and then brought back sci-fi trails. And uh, and uh, if you want new, uh, exciting talent, David Riley, along with David Lee Summers, are a really good judge of of who's got their pulse on uh, on the the western crossover genre. Um, and another thing is they're uh, both David and David. Uh, painstakingly check over things for historical accuracy and and so forth, which is something I I always look forward to. Um, so I recommend that. I'm going to throw one more out here for the Firefly fans out there. And I mentioned this earlier. It's called Punk the Other Worlds. Uh, it's it's very much that kind of space western that Nicole was talking about earlier. It's uh it's it's steampunk at outer space and Some of the stories in there are just beyond imagining uh, how creative they got with uh, pulling uh, the idea of steam technology into a science fiction setting, but making it make sense, making it's not just a trope. It, It has to be a logical reason for this technology in outer space. And that's edited by Sam Knight, uh, who
7: is also in Straight Out of Tombstone. Yes, yes. Okay. So since David took two books and he, he tagged Steampunk: The Other Worlds, which I was going to self-servingly mention since I'm in it, you know what a tangled web we all weave, right? Um, <laughs> I'm going to go to <laughs> I'm going to go to relaxing with a movie instead, and I'm going to call out Back to the Future too.
3: Two or three? With three, I'm back to the three. Yes,
7: <laughs> three, three. Sorry, frenetically dealing with groceries. Right, that's my excuse.
3: You know, this we re, Me and my wife rewatched all the Back to the Future's, and I'd seen the first one like a hundred times. And you know, I remembered not liking the third one because I was a kid. You know and it was like you know it didn't have the weirdness of the second one with the future but like the third one is so good it's like almost as good as the first I think so I'm glad to hear someone else enjoys that one so <laughs> yeah
7: Peter
4: yeah. and I have a with, shared uh, love for that movie uh the third is actually my favorite I love the third because of the three movies it's the only one where both Doc and Marty are balanced characters it's not just all about Marty McFly um, yeah. yeah this other character doc who who serves as only uh um window dressing in a lot of ways um in the in the other two movies but uh in the third movie he truly gets to stand equal to marty and and that's that's my favorite movie for that reason that that relationship that they developed
3: mm-hmm. Well, one thing I'd put a plug in for is, and I'm trying to think of individual episodes now. I wasn't planning on saying this, but um, is the old Twilight Zone, you know, the old Twilight Zone, the Twilight Zone, the only Twilight Zone. Thank you. I'm going to acknowledge the original. They did quite a few um, Old West episodes, and uh, many of them were very good. I know George Clayton Johnson wrote one called The Execution, where a... um, a outlaw from the old west gets transported forward into uh m- not our modern day their modern day 1959 and um <clears> there's <throat> quite a few really good um really good old west uh episodes there in in the old twilight zone uh buried amongst the other ones or, or hidden amongst the other ones so um yeah check those out Uh, all right, well, we've been talking about Straight Out of Tombstone, or excuse me, look how proper I am, Straight Out of Tombstone, Straight Out of Tombstone. It's the new, um, anthology of weird Western stories out now from Bane in ebook and trade paperback. Uh, I want to thank, uh, everybody who came on, editor David Boop, uh, David Lee Summers, uh, Nicole Kurtz, um, Bob Vardaman, uh, Peter J. Wax and did i miss anybody that's everyone right uh so thanks so much for coming on and um look forward to talking to you guys about uh hopefully about some others maybe we'll do straight out of tombstone too i don't know uh but uh it was a great time talking about the uh the weird wild west so thanks so much guys thanks for being on oh
0: thank you so much for all having right. us thank you all uh, right thank you so much
2: We're going to take a week's break from our complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals to bring you Feldspar, a Jim Bain Memorial Award-winning story by Philip A. Kramer. It's read by Peter Nelson, with music and production by Brian Tully and Ben Kramer.
3: Welcome to an audio presentation of Feldspar,
1: written by Philip A. Kramer. Narrated by Peter Nelson The soft Martian regolith shifted beneath the rover's wheels. The automated systems detected the motion and ceased all forward progression. The rover compiled a diagnostic and sent the packet of data through its antenna to a satellite above the red planet, which relayed it to a distant blue dot. Eight minutes later, within a studio apartment in San Francisco, a computer console beeped in warning. Blake caught sight of the flashing red light out of the corner of his eye, and his stomach sank. He sprang up from the futon and navigated through the piles of dirty laundry and pizza boxes to the opposite wall. He sat down in his black ergonomic chair and considered the 85-inch screen in front of him. The status window in the lower left quadrant contained a new update. Navigation interrupted. Thirty-degree tilt. Toppling sequence initiated. His eyes flicked up to the rover's camera feed in the upper half of the display. He let out a long breath upon seeing the desolate surface of Mars. The rover was still upright. He rubbed at the stubble on his cheeks in thought as he skimmed through the attached diagnostic. Feldspar, his rover, sat on the edge of a shallow depression. It wasn't anything as natural as a crater, but a hole dug by one of a hundred identical rovers that roamed the surface of Mars. A kilometer distant across the plain of Chris Planitia sat the squat shape of the MRS, the Martian regolith smelter, affectionately known as the Misses. The Misses didn't allow any digging within a kilometer radius, so it was inevitable that the laziest of rover operators would travel just beyond the boundary to collect dirt. Here and there, larger holes were visible. Someone had even seen fit to print a flimsy-looking bridge across one such trench. Project Regolith began four years ago when the MRS and its complement of 100 rovers descended on a plume of exhaust to the Martian surface. At that moment, Mars became a host to the largest sandbox game in human history. Terraform Games accomplished what the space industry could not by appealing to the most dedicated workforce on Earth, gamers. Gamers like him were willing to spend thousands of dollars on consoles and pay exorbitant monthly fees to perform tasks that others might have considered work. It may have been pocket change to some, but for Blake, it had taken his entire savings to purchase the operating rights to one of the rovers. He cracked his knuckles and his fingers flickered across the armrest's integrated touchpad. The sequence selector appeared on the monitor and he scrolled through the list. Due to the current position of Earth and Mars in their respective orbits, it took eight minutes for a transmission to reach Mars and eight more minutes to return. The rover's automated systems could detect predict and solve problems in real time allowing the rover to operate on even the vaguest of commands from its operator sixteen minutes and a slice of pizza later feldspar initiated the pre-programmed sequence all six wheels spun at top speed and with a plume of fine dust the rover climbed free of the depression and was on the move again the mrs grew steadily in his field of view It was a cylindrical structure constructed from pieces of the very booster that had brought them to the Red Planet. Feldspar maneuvered up to one of the three vacant docks on either side of the structure. Blake filtered some cloudy water from the tap in the kitchen and poured himself a glass as he watched Feldspar perform its transaction with the MRS. When prompted, Feldspar soundlessly dumped a compartment full of rust-red dirt through a fine mesh screen and provided the coordinates of its collection. The MRS, equipped with an alpha particle X ray spectrometer, reported the content of iron oxide within the regolith a moment later. The transaction was not over. The rover opened a second compartment, and a dust as black and fluid as ink poured out pure elemental carbon. It was a resource he quite literally pulled from thin air. Each rover's AIR, Atmospheric Ionization and Recovery Module, housed an ultraviolet laser within a chamber that pressurized the carbon-dioxide-rich atmosphere. The laser reduced carbon dioxide into elemental carbon and oxygen gas. The carbon was an essential reducing agent in the smelting of iron, and the oxygen, if he chose to believe the propaganda, could eventually terraform the planet. When the battery was fully charged, the MRS would heat the high-strength ceramic, lining each of its chambers to 1300 degrees Celsius, After discarding the slag, the MRS would cast and form the metal into a spool of wire and exchange it for more regolith and carbon. The iron wire was the currency of Mars. With it, a rover could 3D print any structure its operator could conceive. A few centimeters of wire jutted out of a port on the MRS. Feldspar's manipulator arm, complete with pincers, latched onto it and guided the wire to a similar port in the rover's side. After the wire was completely spooled within feldspar, the rover backed away and waited for Blake's command. Blake directed feldspar to the mountain of slag that had accumulated near the back of the smelter. The heap glittered in the sunlight. The slag consisted of many minerals, silicates, and other components of Martian soil, which the MRS discarded after the smelting process. Most gamers considered it useless, but he always made a point to grab a few kilograms every time he visited the smelter. The MRS didn't allow any rover's arms to descend lower than the wheel level within the area in an effort to minimize digging in the kilometer radius. But the pile of slag stood much higher. The pincers at the end of Feldspar's manipulator arm turned 90 degrees to expose a much flatter, shovel-like edge, and the small rover began to fill the regolith compartment with flaky slag. It took some time to fill the compartment, during which he scanned various feeds he'd followed over the years, There was one missing from the list, NASA's live feed of the EOS mission. They'd probably found another vaguely bacteria-shaped formation and were preparing a press release, Blake thought as he rolled his eyes. Six months ago, Blake had positioned his rover to watch the fireball entering the atmosphere as the EOS crew arrived. Watching the live feed had been surreal as humanity made its first footprint in the Martian dirt. The fascination soon wore off as they made their base and engaged in months of monotonous tests and maintenance. Part of his loss of interest was due to their repetition of things he had been experiencing for years. Yes, it was pretty during sunset, and yes, the regolith was annoyingly fine and clingy. He had been there long before they had. Blake programmed Feldspar to return home once it completed its collection. At top speed, the rover could barely reach five and a half kilometers an hour. It was about 50 times faster than the first Martian rovers, but still barely walking speed. It would take just over five hours to cover the 28-kilometer distance. The route was anything but direct. The downside of a planet covered in soft regolith was the tracks he left by his passing. In order to keep his home hidden from other rovers with vandalism or theft in mind, he spent much of his free time backtracking and taking circuitous and misleading routes. His secrecy and protectiveness left little room for friends on Mars, though he could say the same about Earth. He was pretty sure this made him the loneliest guy on two planets. It was just after two in the morning in San Francisco, but it was only midday on Mars. His day was just getting started. He shrank the rover feed to a small corner of his display and pulled up his design software. He was currently designing a parapet for a castle. Other rover operators were some of the biggest buyers of his designs, all eager to spend months printing structures that would serve no practical purpose on a lifeless planet. He was not so short-sighted. He fully intended to live on Mars one day. Hours later, the rover's camera feed drew his eyes. Usually, Feldspar was able to detect and navigate around any obstacle in its path, but it appeared as though the rover was headed straight for a series of rocks. When Blake maximized the feed, he saw that they weren't rocks at all, but depressions in the soil. They were staggered, but spaced linearly. It took a moment to realize what they were, and when he did, he froze. Footprints. He ordered the rover to stop, but the command didn't register in the feed until 16 minutes later, long after Feldspar had left the tracks behind. Blake, used to the delay had already keyed in commands to backtrack for eight minutes and take a panorama. During the transmission time, he'd begun to doubt what he'd seen. The Eos base camp was over 150 kilometers away in the mouth of the Valles Marineris, a place of ancient glacial activity where astronauts had access to subsurface water. Why would they come to the edge of their exploration zone? Chris Planitia, where Project Regolith operated, was comparably barren and flat, There was also no logical reason to travel by foot. The vehicles they had at their disposal were many times Feldspar's size and could easily outpace him. Just as he convinced himself the footprints were instead a natural formation, the rover's panorama arrived. Zooming in on the image, he saw the pristine impression of a boot. They were, without a doubt, footprints. It was impossible to say how long they'd been there. Blake smiled and saved the panorama. It was not perfectly composed, but still breathtaking. He could probably sell it for a substantial sum. He needed to move. The astronaut could return to their rover at any moment with samples, or whatever it was they had come all this way to collect. Blake bit his lip in a moment's consideration and then began to tap away at his touchpad. He programmed Feldspar to follow the tracks and take high-resolution panoramas every dozen meters. If a picture of some footprints was worth something, a picture of a member of the Mars expedition team doing field research would earn him a small fortune. With any luck, the astronaut would be just as surprised to see him and pose for a shot or two. His hopes high, Blake sat glued to his chair and stared at the display. He hadn't felt this much excitement in years. As the tracks began to disappear beneath the rover, he wondered how far the astronaut had walked. He couldn't see them or their vehicle in the panorama, despite the area being relatively flat. Another detail drew his attention. The impression of the left foot was consistently shallower than the right and was smeared, in many cases, as if the astronaut had drawn their foot along the ground. His grin faded and a chill prickled along his skin. Was the astronaut injured? This terrifying notion became all the more plausible when he recalled the NASA feed, of course, they would take the feed offline if one of the EOS crew was injured, he thought. The five other crew members were probably staging a rescue mission in a backup rover at that very moment. He continued forward, unable to ignore such a crisis, yet petrified by the prospect of interfering with NASA in any way. Historically, Terraform Games and NASA were on friendly terms. Much of the data the rovers collected had convinced NASA of the area's suitability. But if one of Project Regolith's rovers complicated an already life-threatening situation, Blake would incur the full wrath of everyone involved. The alternative was to let an astronaut go unaided in their time of need. It soon became apparent that the astronaut was not as far away as he had feared. Feldspar climbed a very shallow incline and saw the track's end at a large boulder in the distance. At second glance, it was no rock, no rock. The astronaut sitting flat on the ground and facing away from him. Blake stood from his chair and approached the display. Leaning close, he could see why he had mistaken the astronaut for a boulder. The red dirt clung to every surface of what had once been a pristine white spacesuit. The bulbous helmet was sagging forward as if the astronaut had fallen asleep while sitting upright. A large pack, probably full of radio and life support equipment, was lying on the ground next to them, a long crack running down its center. The sight did nothing to reassure him, and he bit his lip as Feldspar drew nearer. When the rover detected the obstacle in its path, it slowed and began to circle. The wide-angle camera quickly brought the side and then the front of the astronaut into view. The astronaut was leaning forward and wrapping their calf with a roll of white tape. They had no way of hearing Feldspar's approach. The astronaut's helmet jerked up as the rover rolled to a stop, and they went rigid. Blake could only guess at their expression. A gold reflective surface covered the glass face of the helmet, blocking out all light. The astronaut appeared to stare for a long moment and then looked around. Feldspar's camera turned in a slow circle, and momentarily the astronaut disappeared from view. A diagnostic, status update, and high-resolution panorama loaded on his screen within a few seconds of each other. Navigation Interrupted. Path lost. Awaiting operator input. The picture was something to behold, a member of the EOS crew, sitting alone and injured on the barren surface of Mars. It would appear on every news site in the world. It would make him rich. His gut twisted into knots and nauseated, Blake sat down and minimized the panorama. He opened his communication window and a hiss of static issued from the speakers on either side of the display. Occasionally, the voices of distant rover operators would crackle into life and then fade. It was pointless. NASA would be using its own private channel. Communication was going to be difficult. His design software was still open in the background. He discarded his previous project and started another. His fingers danced across the touchpad. He typed in the text converted it to a series of paths and vertices, and selected the plane of the sand nearest the rover. He disabled the print function and then sent the command. The astronaut did not sit idle during the 16 minutes it took for the signal to reach Mars and return. They finished wrapping their lower leg with tape and awkwardly came to their feet, testing their weight. They appeared to ignore the rover, perhaps disconcerted by its blank and prolonged stare. The smaller, more fragile printing arm unfolded from the rover's side and began to write in the sand. As soon as the arm began to move, the astronaut's head swiveled to look. They took two hobbling steps forward to observe. Frequency? The astronaut considered the word for several moments, then waved a hand as if to gesticulate some point. They were talking to someone on the radio, Blake realized. Eventually, they knelt awkwardly to the ground, a few yards in front of the camera, in an area of regolith that was undisturbed and drew their finger through the dirt. Here they were, two entities meeting on a distant world, drawing in the dirt in an effort to communicate. Had the circumstances not been so dire, he would have paused to appreciate it. Instead, he leaned forward and squinted at the display. He recognized the first number as the frequency 403 megahertz. In a much tighter spacing was a series of 32 numbers. It was a 32-bit encryption key, he realized. He guessed anything larger was pointless. Radio privacy was implied when on a barren rock currently 144 million kilometers from the rest of humanity. He opened the channel and placed his finger over the transmit button. He paused. What would he say? He tested his seldom-used voice in the quiet of his apartment and then pressed the button. This is the Project Regolith rover, designation Feldspar. Is there anything I can do to help? Shortly after opening the channel, voices began to emerge from the radio. Kate, be advised, NASA has informed me that giving a civilian access to a proprietary frequency is a federal crime. The astronaut shrugged, and then a woman's voice sounded over the radio. Well, Ryan, given the circumstances, I decided to take a risk. You can tell NASA to lock me up next time they see me. Blake's eyes widened. The astronaut standing before him was Kate Winship, the EOS team's geologist, and one of two women on the six-member crew. You really think it'll help? Ryan asked. These things are driving 3D printers, right? It can't exactly replace the rover you broke. Kate sighed. No, but I'd settle for a crutch. That's assuming he has the material. These things spend all day collecting dirt for a little over a kilogram of metal wire. I had a friend who used to play. It's monotonous work. It won't hurt to ask. He'll probably tune in soon, right? What's the time delay? Eight minutes? His transmission, as premature as it was, was already speeding through space toward them. That didn't mean he had to wait for her to ask politely. His frayed nerves made his fingers shake as he pulled up Kate's profile on the NASA website. She was a few years older than he and a good deal more attractive than the last woman he'd ever worked up the courage to speak to, with flashing blue eyes, high cheekbones, and short cropped blonde hair. Perhaps it was for the best he couldn't see her face, or else he'd become a blabbering idiot. The website listed her as 175 centimeters tall, He did a quick estimation and guessed a crutch length of about 130 centimeters should do. He sketched out a cylinder about one centimeter in width. He knew the tensile strength of iron well, and that width would be more than suitable to support the weight of her and her suit in Martian gravity. It would even leave him with some wire to spare. He also attached a flat base to the cylinder to prevent it from sinking too far into the dirt. On the opposite end, he added an oblong piece to support her under the arm. He then set a small rod into the main shaft to serve as a hand grip. He reviewed the design twice and then sent it. A moment later, his voice crackled over the radio. Kate, who'd sat down again to return the tape to her pack and reconnect some hoses, looked up. Feldspar, is it? I'm glad we crossed paths. She paused. Ryan, he can hear me, right? That's affirmative. Well, Feldspar, I find myself in a bit of a situation, she said. She lifted her foot a few centimeters off the ground and waggled it in emphasis. I think I sprained something when I crashed. I'm not used to sharing the land with you rovers. So didn't think to keep an eye out for potholes. It turns out my rover is capable of some unique things, too, like somersaults. I told her not to go so fast, Ryan interjected. Ignoring him, Kate continued. And with the battery drained and solar cells busted, I have a lot of ground to cover before dark, which is approximately when I will freeze to death or suffocate. NASA predicts the former. As my crewmate has so courteously informed me, I will turn into a giant Mylar-covered popsicle in about five hours. Right now... My only chance is to meet the rescue rover somewhere along the way, which is somewhat hard to do when I can barely stand. If you have any printing capabilities, I'd really appreciate a crutch or cane of some kind. A little more information than he needs at the moment. Talk about pressure, Ryan said. Blake's heart was racing. These past few years, he'd grown accustomed to having nothing but time on his hands. Time to wait, think, and plan. But now his action or inaction could decide someone's fate. Ryan was right. The pressure was too much. His fingers shook so badly he didn't think he could design anything. He was grateful he'd already sent the crutch schematics. When he tested his voice, it shuddered. He took a moment to regain his composure. The crutch should be printing now. I designed it to meet your height and weight parameters. It's pretty minimalist, so don't expect anything pretty. If it doesn't quite work, I can add or cut off some bits. I estimate it will take about 30 minutes. He paused. I'm sorry if rovers like me were responsible for your situation. Please let me know if there's anything else I can do. Blake sent the message. A dozen minutes later, the 3D printer arm began to move again. Its tungsten tip became white-hot. The thin wire he had collected at midday unspooled and fed into the printer arm. It began to construct the crutch at its base, building the flat disk layer by layer. When it was large enough, the rover's manipulator arm took hold of it for support. Kate finished reattaching her backpack and limped over to look. Again, his voice came through the speakers. He cringed at the sound of it. That was fast, Ryan said. Thank you, Feldspar. I don't blame you for any of this. I've always had a thing for speed. And going farther than you're supposed to? Come on, Ryan. I was almost to the mouth of the Maha Valles, kilometers away from the Dromore crater. The potential for ice plugs is huge. The so-called exploration zone is a joke. Doesn't feel like a joke now, does it? The speakers on either side of his display went quiet. When the crutch was finished, Kate pulled it free from the small rover's grip. She tested her weight on it and walked in circles around Feldspar, making the occasional sound of approval. Ryan broke the silence. Kate, be advised. NASA informs me they've pulled the crutch design from Feldspar's server. After extensive review and analysis, they concede that it will support your weight. Kate laughed. Thanks, NASA. Way to be late to the game. I've already tested it. There's something else. They say they've received permission from Terraform Games to scrap Feldspar if needed. These rovers are equipped with some pretty impressive hardware. The battery and solar panels could get you a couple more hours of heat. That's pretty cold, NASA. They've assured me they'll purchase him a replacement rover. They can also convert the atmosphere into oxygen. There's a port on its right side. Kate hobbled over and disappeared from view as she examined his small rover. Even if I could somehow form a perfect seal with that port, how will the rover power it after I've ripped the battery out of him? Silence held the line for a moment. They're running the numbers. I don't really care what they say. I won't strip down his rover. He's been here for several years more than we have. The amount of scientific data pouring in from this game has been infinitely more valuable than anything we've collected so far. Don't give me that for the sake of science crap. Listen to yourself. This entire mission is for the sake of science. You mean so much more than that, Ryan said. The words spilled out of her crewmate in a rush. Blake could hear the desperation in the man's voice. Ryan, I... Her voice was softer now, sympathetic. Can you move us to a private channel? Blake didn't hesitate. Don't worry about me. Do what you need to do. While the message was flying through space toward the red planet, Kate and Ryan continued their private conversation. With her golden visor in place, he could not see her expression, but her body language was clear. She was trying to tell Ryan to let her go. To give her up. Blake slouched forward in his chair, thinking he was not thrilled about someone scrapping feldspar for parts. In fact, it was a recurring nightmare of his, but he would sacrifice anything to give Kate a chance. Even as the thought echoed through his head, he realized there was something else he could sacrifice, something worth far more than a few hours of heat and air. It would give her more than just a chance. A surge of hope straightened his back, and he scrambled at the touchpads. He tried to keep the smile from his voice. Also, if it's any help, I have an insulated shelter about seven kilometers from here, with two fully charged batteries and a tank of compressed oxygen. She went completely still when his message arrived and then shook her head slowly and gave a small shrug. A second later, Ryan's voice came back on the channel. Hey, kid, are you serious? I think we have to assume he is. Kate said. "'What other choice is there?' "'You can scrap him.' "'Fine. I'll scrap him if he's lying,' Kate said in exasperation. "'But if he's telling the truth, I could have a place to stay while Svetlana and Dave come for me.' Ryan sighed. "'What are the coordinates?' Blake read them aloud. He'd never given them to anyone before." and he couldn't help but feel like all of his secrecy these past few years was for nothing. After today, everyone will have heard of Feldspar's hidden home. When the transmission arrived, Kate laughed. That's near Dromore Crater. I guess you'll have a chance to see it after all, said Ryan. Rather than wait for NASA's approval, Kate began to hobble in that direction on her new crutch. Blake reinitiated his previous navigation protocol as Kate took the lead, creating tracks for him to follow. While the crutch helped her maintain a steady pace, he could tell by her winded conversation with Ryan that the seven-kilometer distance pushed her to her limits. The deepening drifts of sand and the slight increase in elevation as they approached the crater's rim tested her endurance even further. Rocks were strewn across the barren ground, their size and proximity causing Feldspar to pause and adjust navigation on several occasions. During the last leg of the journey, Kate made a dismayed sound. CO2 scrubbers maxed out. My suit's going to start purging air to keep CO2 levels below 1%. That'll only last as long as I have oxygen and nitrogen to replace it, and I don't have much. We'll see you through this, Kate, Ryan said soberly. Then his voice became businesslike. Feldspar, how much oxygen do you have precisely? And what kind of fitting does the regulator have? NASA will send you more questions any minute now, so check your inbox. They've also sent you the specs for the hose fittings. If it won't fit your tank, you'll need to print a suitable adapter. Sure enough, the specs were already in his inbox with a fancy NASA header and the word confidential in large red letters. Someone had made the adapter with compatible design software, and the message asked him to add the female end for his tank. Blake promptly replied to her message, stating that he would just weld it onto the tank's outlet to save time and ensure a better seal. Dozens of other messages and inquiries about his shelter arrived immediately after his response. Blake did his best to address them all, but soon gave up and sent all of his detailed schematics. He felt a little violated at the thought of dozens of techs pouring over the designs he'd spent years perfecting. Blake put NASA out of his mind long enough to respond to Ryan. I received it. I should have enough metal to make adapters for both the oxygen and nitrogen tanks. Both are about 40 liters large and average 1,000 PSI. When Blake's transmission went through, Ryan sputtered in disbelief. Nitrogen? I'll buy that you somehow managed to print a tank and that you've pressurized it with oxygen. But nitrogen? What is the concentration in the atmosphere? Two percent? How could you possibly separate it from other gases? Zeolite, Blake said, and a few other aluminous silicates. At high pressures, nitrogen sticks to the mixture. When the oxygen moves in the second tank, the pressure drops, and nitrogen is all that remains. I repeated the process hundreds of times, It should all be pressurized nitrogen. The regulator is something I've had to build myself, but I salvaged the compressor from another rover's AIR module. He's right, Kate said when his response arrived. We have a similar system at base camp. Space stations and hospitals have been using zeolite for decades to concentrate oxygen and capture nitrogen. It's called pressure swing absorption. Where the hell did he get zeolite? I suspect he did his research before Project Regolith started. That's why he named his rover Feldspar, Kate said. Blake smiled. No one had ever puzzled out the origin of his rover's name before. The last person he'd told had assumed it was named after some dwarven hero in a fantasy game. I'm confused. Feldspar is a family of minerals called luminosilicates, she explained. Project Regolith only had their sights on the iron in the dirt so he found a use for the rest of the stuff they were just throwing away. They call it slag. Ryan made a sound that Blake could only describe as a grudging agreement. I suppose you're right. NASA just forwarded the schematics for the shelter. Get this, he's filled all the walls with slag. According to NASA, it's as good an insulator as you'll find on this planet. He even filled a pit with the stuff because it's porous and effective at leaching water from the ground. Are all Project Regolith rovers this resourceful? She sounded breathless. Hardly. That friend I mentioned? He went by the name Lugnut and spent years printing a vintage car that has no chance of running. It's as if our rover operator intended to live here one day, Kate said. You should really see this thing, Kate. The schematics are like nothing I've ever seen. I think I do see it. Beside Dromor Crater was a wide but shallow canyon created by one of the many ancient waterways that crisscrossed this region of Crisplanitia, an area called Mahavalis. A unique feature stood out among the others as they descended into the canyon. Embedded in the wall of the ancient waterway was a flat, circular door. Years of exposure to the elements had tarnished its surface, but it still glimmered in the fading sunlight. Yeah, that's definitely it. I shut down the camera feed to conserve power. What are you seeing? Ryan asked. It looks like an airlock. It's set into the side of a rock face. Feldspar, did you dig through the rock somehow? Blake leaned closer to the microphone at the base of the display, but Ryan already had the answer. From his notes, NASA thinks it was an old lava tube that was exposed by erosion. It might even be an old water plug that slowly sublimated and formed a cavern. He's reinforced the whole thing and sealed it off. How do I get in? Leave the entry to me, Blake said. They had moved to the very base of the door by the time the transmission went through. Kate dropped her crutch and sat down, leaning her back against the edge of the door. Feldspar initiated the entry sequence. It rolled to a stop beside the large door and extended its manipulator arm. The pincers spread apart and inserted into a recess that was perfectly shaped to receive it. A small hole between the pincers led straight to the rover's AIR module. The purpose of this feature was to air dust the clingy sand from joints and solar panels. Instead, feldspar sent the compressed oxygen into the door where it fed into a piston near the hinges. The pressure drove the piston outward, easing the large door open. Kate let out a low whistle and stood to peer through the widening gap. She limped around Feldspar and took a step inside. There's a type of rubber surrounding the door. It's a gasket, I think. According to the schematics, they're from the wheels of several salvaged rovers, Ryan supplied. Will I lose comms if I enter? Don't think so. He's had to operate in there too, remember? It looks like he's placed an antenna from a rover on the top of the enclosure, on the edge of the chasm. There are salvaged solar panels up there too. That's how he's able to charge the batteries. Damn, this kid's thought of everything. Feldspar's automated sequence led him into the enclosure after Kate, and then to another port. The rover repeated the previous sequence, but this time the pressurized air drove the piston in the opposite direction, closing the door. Darkness engulfed them for an instant until Feldspar's night navigation sequence activated and a light on his camera module switched on. The space was only about as large as the room Blake sat in, except that all the corners were rounded and shone with a dull metallic gleam, which Feldspar usually left open, but they needed all the insulation they could get. As Feldspar closed the second airlock door, Kate explored the small room. Her breathing was becoming strained, and her teeth were chattering. She succeeded in locating the narrow shelf holding the batteries. Several spliced wires harvested from broken-down rovers led from the batteries and up to disappear into the ceiling. She removed her pack, dropped her crutch, and sat down beside the narrow shelf. She pried open the outer covering of the pack to expose tanks, wires, and hoses. Several minutes passed as she tried to pick up the battery leads and press them into her own battery. The thick gloves and her undoubtedly numb fingers made progress slow. I can take control of Feldspar from here and operate him in real time. I can help you connect the battery leads. I've already patched into his camera, and the controls seem pretty straightforward. The tension in Ryan's voice suggested he was just as concerned as Blake. "'No, Ryan, the delay is annoying, I know, but he's the only one who knows what he's doing. "'Now what's the plan to get me more air? My nitrogen and oxygen are almost depleted.' "'Working on it,' Ryan said, even as Feldspar's next sequence arrived, "'steering the rover around and toward the opposite end of the room. "'Blake lined up one of the tank's regulators in the display "'and pulled the hose-adapter design from his software.' He oriented it on the surface of the tank's outlet and then finalized it. Kate sighed in relief. All right, my heaters are back online. The tungsten tip of Feldspar's 3D printing arm grew white-hot and cast a dim light on the wall. It eased closer to the tank's outlet nozzle and began to deposit a thin layer of molten iron. It continued in a circular motion, leaving a line of glowing metal in its wake. Bad news, I'm out of gas. The CO2 will build up rapidly, now that I can't purge it. So soon, that can't be right. I was thinking the same. I suspect the crash damaged one of the tubes connecting my suit to the oxygen and nitrogen tanks. I must have lost a little every time the suit filled during a purge. Feldspar, what's the time estimate for those adapters? 20 minutes tops for the oxygen tank adapter. That is, it will take another 12 minutes once this message reaches you. It's a higher precision print than the crutch because of all the fine detail. Every few minutes, Kate updated them on the CO2 percentage. It rose from 0.4% to 1.5% before his transmission went through. At each update, he felt as if the hand of a large unseen clock was counting down to her death. The delay was not helping. What he was seeing and hearing was happening eight minutes ago, and he was powerless to step in and intervene. CO2 is 3.1%. Oxygen, 10%, she said. Her words were lethargic. All right, Kate, I'm going to need you to head over to Feldspar. He's almost done with the adapter, Ryan said after a short pause. Blake leaned back and sighed. If those words left Mars eight minutes ago, it was likely Kate had already connected her line and was breathing oxygen. He had done it. He had come across an astronaut in the middle of Chris Planitia and helped her stay alive. Kate, do you read? Blake sat up, but he couldn't hear anything except for the faint sounds of breathing. Damn it, stay awake, Kate, Ryan said. Silence greeted the command. The video feed continued to show a view of the oxygen tank as Feldspar printed the last section of the adapter. A moment later, a red light flashed beside his status display. Sequence interrupted. Control override. Operator uplink suspended. Then Feldspar was moving on its own. Blake tapped his touchpad, but the system was unresponsive. Ryan had taken control of feldspar. Blake stared in rising horror as Ryan steered feldspar back to the shelf, holding the batteries. Kate remained slumped against the metal wall next to it, unmoving. Damn you, Kate. Wake up. I've seen you handle 10% oxygen before. You can do this. Feldspar's manipulator arm jerked upward and then back down before Ryan gained control. The pincers reached out and prodded Kate's motionless form. When she didn't respond, the pincers opened and gripped her pant leg and tugged. She didn't move. Mind racing, Blake pressed the transmit button. Ryan, I have an idea. Give me control, he said. He programmed a sequence, his fingers darting across the touchpad. He had no time to triple check. No time to double check. He sent the sequence. Ryan continued to tug at Kate's suit, but the rover was barely half her size and she didn't move an inch. He let go of the suit and gripped a hose from her open pack. He was trying to stretch the hose all the way to the oxygen tank. He was desperate. A message appeared on his display. NASA was politely requesting that he not take any recordings or pictures and respect her family's privacy by not going public. Blake gritted his teeth They had already given her up for dead. He keyed in another command sequence, letting his patience and better judgment fade into obscurity as he acted on impulse. A few minutes after his message reached Ryan, the rover continued to try to wake Kate, going so far as to press its pincers into her injured leg. Kate, wake up, Ryan screamed over the comms. The radio was silent, but for Ryan's panting and sniffling, and Kate's labored breathing take it. And then Feldspar was his. His prepared sequence delivered. Feldspar wheeled around and drove back to the oxygen tank. It extended its arm and reached toward the regulator. Gripping it with its pincers, it lowered the lever with painful slowness. Gas rushed out of the tank. He couldn't hear it, but the pressure of it escaping created a small cloud of water vapor at the mouth of the tank. Feldspar's arm swiveled to the right and gripped another lever, and Feldspar repeated the process with the nitrogen tank. A moment later, Blake's next sequence arrived and the rover's AIR module opened. It evacuated all of the oxygen within its tank into the enclosure. Rather than close the port, he left it open, exposing the module's sensors to the ambient air. Oxygen and nitrogen, which had been at a measly 2% a moment ago, were steadily climbing in time with the PSI. After a handful of readings came in, he programmed Feldspar to cut off the gas when the oxygen and nitrogen reached normal levels and the PSI reached 14.7. He then compiled his riskiest sequence yet. His finger hovered in the air for a moment, and then it mashed the send button. The pressure in his enclosed shelter continued to rise. It's hopeless, Ryan said, his voice soft. Her oxygen is down to eight percent, and her carbon dioxide is up to six. She doesn't have any time. Blake cursed. Even Ryan had given up on her. When the pressure reached one atmosphere, Feldspar lowered the levers on the tank's regulators and spun to face Kate's prone body. Its six wheels eased across the small room and stopped before her. Feldspar? Ryan asked. Once more, the tip of the 3D printing arm glowed with heat. It extended outward toward the golden faceplate. Feldspar. The golden face shield reflected the glowing point with clarity up until it made contact. Seconds later, the glass cracked and began to glow red and warp around the probe. Blake no longer touched his controls. He pressed his palms to his stubbled cheeks and stared through the narrow gaps of his fingers. The only sound was a sudden hiss from the comms. Then the glow stopped and the arm retracted. A perfect hole no more than a centimeter wide was melted into the face shield. He checked the AIR module's readings. 21% O2, 78% N2, and 1% CO2, 14.7 PSI. Kate was still. A lump formed in his throat and he held his breath. A gloved finger twitched, and then an entire arm began to move. It lifted to the helmet, and fingers prodded the hole melted into the faceplate. Kate searched the neck for small clasps, and then lifted the helmet to reveal a narrow, pale face with short, cropped hair. She blinked her eyes, breathed, and then stared straight into the camera. Thank you, Feldspar, she said, her breath fogging in the cold air. Blake leapt to his feet, and his relief left him in a victorious roar. He wiped away tears he hadn't known were there and then sat down again, nearly breaking his chair. It's good to see your face, was all he could think to say. Ryan's words were much more poignant and passionate, succeeding in bringing Kate to tears and inspiring laughter. But when Blake's words reached her, she pressed her lips to her gloved fingers and reached out to press them against the rover's lens. They talked after that. Ryan didn't interrupt but for the occasional status update. Blake told her where he was from, what he did for a living, and how this game had become his entire life. He even told her his real name. She loved San Francisco and told him of a time she went there with her father, saw the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz, and had a pastry from a shop in the Marina District. Of all that, she remembered the pastry the most. She had lived a life he could only dream of, Yet it was he who had saved her life. He had come across her tracks, guided her to shelter, and pressurized an untested airlock. He had proven that this was not just a game, that they could litter the entire surface of Mars with livable habitats without risking a single human life. She made him feel capable of anything. I look forward to meeting you in person, Blake, perhaps on a future EOS mission. Eos, goddess of the dawn, who had once lain with Ares, the Greek god of war, and was cursed by Aphrodite to remain in a state of love and longing for the rest of eternity. He could sympathize. His passion for the red planet hadn't wavered since his first glimpse of it through a telescope on a field trip far away from the smog and lights of the city. Now he had a real chance of going there, a chance to escape a polluted world and build a new one. The batteries drained of power as Kate's suit labored to heat the air of the larger enclosure. With another hour left before the rescue team arrived, Blake offered her Feldspar's battery. It took some persuading from both him and Ryan to convince her to take it. Then, for the first time in four years, the screen went black and a new status flashed across his screen. Communication lost. Battery failure. Unable to reestablish link. Blake rubbed his weary eyes and stood. He walked over to the door and slipped his bare feet into a pair of shoes. He opened the door to the bright sun shining down onto the west coast and stepped over the threshold. It was morning, and he was suddenly in the mood for a pastry. This has been an audio production of Felspar, written by Philip A. Kramer, narrated by Peter Nelson. Music and production by Brian Tully and Ben Kramer.
2: Feldspar, written by Philippe Kramer, read by Peter Nelson, produced by Brian Tully and Ben Kramer. Thanks for that treat, guys. Next week, we will get back to the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to David F. Sharrod and the podcast theme composer, Ruth Jedkowitz. And a select ensemble of Juilliard trained Sonoran kangaroo rats humming it ain't no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones and the doff of a hat from them as has to ride in that range up in the stars forever, a-trying to catch the devil's herd across them empty skies. For David Boop, authors Robert E. Vardman, David Lee Summers, Nicole Gibbons-Kurtz, and Peter J. Wax. They are editor and authors from the excellent short story Weird Western anthology Straight Out of Tombstone. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, keep reaching for them stars partner yeehaw